Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. You'll be hard pressed to find a more engaging and down to earth financial regulator than Michael Sue. He has spent his life in public service, largely focused on the health and stability of the financial system. Now as acting controller of the currency, he's increasing the focus on the financial health of consumers. Welcome to Emerge Everywhere, Acting Controller Sue. Well, thanks so much for having me on. For this conversation, is it okay if I call you Mike? Yes. Okay, excellent. So you became the Acting Controller of the Currency in 2021. Mm -hmm. For those of you who may not be familiar, tell us what does your job entail? Uh, you know, you've got this role is kind of an old fashioned, at least in title, an old fashioned kind of name, Controller yeah. of the Currency. Tell us more. So uh, the, the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, was founded in 1863. So there's a great history around it. We don't have to get into it today. Um, but the OCC oversees and supervises national banks uh, and federal savings associations. And there's about there's over a thousand of them. Uh, and with the, the assets, about 14 trillion dollars in assets. So it's you know almost two thirds of the uh, banking assets. Uh, in the in the commercial banking system, and we regulate and oversee uh, those banks, and so it's a, it's a big job, uh, and it's about thirty five hundred employees. It's a great place to work. It's it's fantastic, uh, but we're really like kind of laser focused on safety and soundness, mm -hmm. and ensuring that customers are treated fairly and have fair access to financial services. Excellent. You're using language there that makes makes us sound a little bit like the UK. That fairness language, I like that. Oh yeah, of course. No, that's part of our mission. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it has been a very busy year for you. No shortage of timely issues that you've been asked to weigh in on. Uh, everything from cryptocurrency to uh, the modernization of the Community Reinvestment Act or CRA, uh, the growing interest among fintechs in getting bank charters, and there are many others. Um, but when I sort of look at your speeches and your policymaking um, and in co the conversations we've had, it feels like if I had to sum up where you're focused, it's on reinvigorating trust in banks, um, in these major institutions. From where you sit, how do you think we got to such a place of distrust and why is building trust or building it back so important right now? So to money and banking, all rests on trust. The entire system rests on trust. And uh, you know, if you think about it for a second, like why do you, why do we accept dollar bills? Why do why do we uh, allow institutions to hold all of our, all of the money that we earn uh, when we work? Uh, it's because we've built the system that really enables that trust. And when you have that trust, a lot of good things can happen. Uh, in my prior, you know, I've I've been doing some form of financial regulation for 20, 20 years now including over the 2008 you know, global financial crisis. And through that was one period where clearly there was just a huge loss of trust. And that trust was lost pretty much across the board. And I just remember uh, not only kind of working through that, but you know, going to parties with my friends and everyone just asking me like, how come no one's in jail? What happened? Like, am, is my money safe? There are all these questions uh, and a lot of anxiety uh, and a lot of sense that there was extreme unfairness in what happened. And coming on the back end of that, you know, I had been at the SEC, I went to Treasury, I went to IMF, just I had been working a lot on restoring and rebuilding, you know, capital and the resiliency of the banking system with the idea of rebuilding that trust. And it's really, really hard. Your trust takes a long time to earn and can be lost in seconds. Mm. And that was in the kind of the large bank wholesale space. And then you pivot to the consumer retail space. And that's a much longer story. You know, I think if you go back to, um, let's like you, you mentioned CRA. You know, for a long time, the banking system redlined, very actively redlined. And so it was basically serving certain, certain people and explicitly excluding other people. Mm -hmm. 
And that was a policy. And it really took the, the CRA, the civil rights movement, the CRA, equal credit, you know, other legislation to address that and say, no, that's wrong. The banking system needs to serve everybody because that's both uh, as a policy matter is good and as a moral matter is good. And that, again, speaks to trust. Like, do we trust that the system is working for us, uh, not against us? And I think that that us needs to include everybody. So uh, that all of these elements to me tie together. And it, it's, we have to constantly, when I say we, I mean, both we as banking regulators who oversee banks and banks, the industry, constantly need to say, how are we, is what we're doing building trust or eroding trust? Because it's going to be one or the other. Mm. You know, I wonder how much this issue of trust is you in this moment in particular is unique to the banking industry uh, uh, versus institutions in general, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if you're a consumer of the Edelman trust barometer, but yep. um as you know, trust is eroding across all institutions, government in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 even over the years, financial services has always been relatively low yeah. compared to other sectors. Um, how much of what you see in the banking world do you think is part of this broader trend around um, just lack of trust in institutions writ large? I, I think it's definitely part of the same trend. And, and I, I, I do remember coming across that elements uh, study, and there's a lot of studies like it. Mm-hmm. You can see it in not just the studies, I think in people's everyday political lives, I think the amount of trust between neighbors, between communities, between mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's frayed uh, in a lot of places. It's not just in banking. And, you know, I think that there's, luckily, everyone can learn from these things. I think there is a recognition that you have to constantly work at this. So it's not good enough to just do a good job and assume that, well, I did a good job, therefore people should trust me. That's necessary, but not sufficient. Mm. I think it, it, it takes a lot of constant um, attention. What do people need? What, do, what, what, are, what are their wants? What are their needs? What are their anxieties? And just responding to that. Uh, and again, letting folks know like that you have their back. And that's a very different mentality than just, I'm providing this, it's just transactional. And, and that goes for government, it goes for banks, it goes for institutions of all kinds. Uh, so I, I think it can be generalized, but I want to be careful that uh, I stay within my <laughs> purview yeah. here in terms of talking about banking. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue to talking about financial health, mm-hmm. uh, because you and I have had a number of conversations over the last six months or so yeah. about um, uh, how financial health can be a useful framework within the context of banking supervision, banking regulation, and really in in the way in which banks operate in order to maintain and build that trust, thinking about not just providing a product or a service and hoping hoping the consumer does okay with it, uh, but really thinking about their goal, the institution's goal is making money in a way that's helping people improve their standing. Um, And specifically, um, in one of your speeches, you mentioned that you thought policymakers and businesses should, quote, consider using financial health as an additional yardstick by which to assess banking access, products, and services, end quote. So in an ideal world, what what would that look like? Um, And why do you think this is a better way to operate? So, Jen, I have to give you full credit for planting a bunch of seeds with me. On this topic, and uh, I just I just want to tell your listeners. So we were, um, you know, because of my role at the OCC, I'm also a director on the board of the FDIC, and the FDIC has a bunch of different committees, advisory committees, and one of them is the Committee on Financial Inclusion, which you're also on. Yes. And you know that I just remember being uh, in that meeting. I forget when it was, but just it's a really very engaging meeting, just talking with all the different kind of perspectives and representatives. Um, and without betraying confidences, you you had mentioned that um, the number of unbanked people, because you know, the FDIC has the unbanked and underbanked study, the number of unbanked people in the US will continue to, to trend downwards, which is good. But does that mean we've accomplished our goal of financial inclusion? And the answer is, of course not. There's a lot more to it than just getting a bank account 
like getting mm-hmm. a bank account, it's, it's important. Don't want to under uh, underplay that. That's super important. Efforts like Bank On and others are ex- really, really just, just can't under uh, overemphasize how important those things are. Yeah, agreed. But it's not enough, right? And then, and then you had kind of planted the seed for me. I had a little bit of a light bulb moment, like, oh, yeah, we can't just look at that one metric. We have to think about this more holistically, but not so holistically that it's just mush. <laughs> There's got to be something there. And then, then, then I started going down the financial health rabbit hole, <laughs> uh, starting with a financial health network and others, and trying to understand like, oh, what's the history here? What's the, what, what are the frameworks? You know, what work has been done? Which I found both really, really fascinating and really, really hopeful. Like hmm. to me, in the ideal state, um, we're able to measure the financial health for individuals, for communities, for products, for providers, for users. Like this is the lens. It's a little bit like in medicine. The point is not to administer medicine, right? The point is to have healthy patients mm-hmm. right? so that they can go about their lives. And um, that, that I think is, that's a, that's a really hopeful way to approach this. And now in a world with lots of data, right? You know, a lot of sophistication and methods. I feel like we are now on the cusp of being able to kind of actualize some of these things. I know a lot of the financial health uh, efforts to date have been largely kind of survey-based, mm-hmm. which is great. I think that provides a nice snapshot, but taking that to the next level, making it a little bit more granular, a little bit more timely, bringing it down, uh, I think holds a lot of promise to be able to be smarter about how we talk about different you know, consumer financial products, how we talk about progress. Like, is progress, how do we measure success in terms of the delivery of financial services? I like to do extremes. So you could say, well, we need to have a world where there's no consumer harm ever. Well, the easiest way to do that is to just not provide any products at all. <laughs> right. right. And that doesn't make any sense. At the same time, you say, well, we're going to measure success as you know, providing uh, everything to everybody. Well, that could lead to a lot of harm itself. So when you kind of work your way in from the extremes, you say, well, what, what is the right place and how do we get there? And to me, financial health holds a lot of uh, interesting potential. Uh, so first of all, I, I appreciate you um, giving me credit, but I will also say that, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. Um, <laughs> it's about uh, what people do with them afterwards. Yeah. So um, I want to give you um, the credit that you deserve. Um, how do you think about that? How do you think about this idea in the context of policymaking? And just to make it easier for you, I'm not mm-hmm. talking about any time right now. This probably will never happen in the course of your term. Uh, but you know, in a perfect state, mm-hmm. how could this way of thinking, this framework, particularly using transactional data, real-time data, how could that be effective, make policymaking more effective? So I have one, um, I will admit right now, it, it's a little bit of a dream, but, and I don't want to belabor the health analogy too much, but there oh, is- but, this... but, but it's a perfect analogy. I use it all the time. So yeah. <laughs> I'm totally with you. Um, there's this interesting thing with health where you've got these uh, vital signs, four vital mm-hmm. signs, right? Breathing, heart rate, um, uh, temperature, and so every time you go to the doctor, they just take those vital signs and it just provides a very quick, very easy, rough sense of how's the patient doing. And I think that's a powerful, to me, that's a powerful thing because we don't have that right now for individuals' financial health or communities' financial health. We use a lot of different proxies, mm-hmm. right? We use income, we use wealth. We look at uh, income gaps. We look at disparities. We look at redlining. There's all sorts of things we look at. But if you had to say, like, is how is the financial health of Washington, D.C., where I am right now, different neighborhoods of Washington, how is it trending? What parts are doing better? What parts are doing worse? We have, it's really uneven. You know, I think we have some sense. Um, but what my ideally, I think we'd have something like that, like as a, both as a diagnostic and that could then guide policy. So, you know, what are we what are we trying to achieve with the CRA? We're trying to you know improve uh, lending credit for especially for low and moderate income communities. Every community is different. So some communities are going to be in different places. So what their needs are going to be different. And like tailoring that 
um, could be very useful. It's similar again to, to using the health analogy. You know, if you've got if you've got a certain ailment, you don't want to just get all the sorts of generic drugs and treatments. You want a targeted treatment to deal with it. That would be the best thing. And I'm I'm hopeful that we can start moving in that direction. So it's a little bit more um, efficient and effective. If you do that, I think people would trust it more. It kind of loops back to trust. Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. you know why are we doing this? I think there's always a sense of oh. Um, the financial services industry in general is out for itself first and out for me second. And sometimes that's true. Um, when I talk to bankers, uh, it you know I, I think by and large, folks want to do the right thing, quote unquote. And so I think if you had a metric, if you had a lens and a framework by way of thinking and judging that, that could help everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I like the health analogy for, for many reasons. One of them is, it gets very complicated very quickly mm-hmm. when you think about the financial services yep. uh, application. But then when you think about healthcare, it's no less complicated. Yeah. And in fact, it may be more so in terms of the various things going on in someone's body and in someone's life that ultimately affect it. But the other thing going on in health is this idea around the social determinants of health, right? That, that there are environmental mm-hmm. um, issues, structural issues, all kinds of other issues that um, have a very important role. And if, and if we just treat people with even a doctor's visit, a surgery, a medicine, whatever, we may not be getting at the underlying issue. And I feel like the same is true in financial services, right? So figuring out sort of what a financial services company can control or mm-hmm. have an impact on versus what they can't is challenging. You know, and in the public and then the healthcare arena, we have this thing called public health, right? It's right. a public good and it's right. underfunded and all those things. But there is someone other than the money making hospital um, thinking about these broader issues. And we don't maybe the closest thing we have to that in financial services are is you, right? Is the regulator. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I think there's a lot of um, I like that. I like that because that is how I think about the job. You know, we, we've got the, the terminology we use is uh, there's micro prudential supervision. There's macro prudential supervision. Micro prudential is bank by bank. So we need to make sure that each bank is safe and sound, is treating its customers fairly. Bank by bank by bank, you know, all thousand plus that we have. At the same time, we got to zoom out and say, well, how's the banking system as a whole doing? Is it safe and sound? Is it earning the trust of everybody? Is it providing, you know, as a system, the necessary financial services? And there's always room for improvement. And I could say that you know, 2008 was quite a wake-up call because it was not just the banking system, but just the broader financial ecosystem had a lot of problems. And those problems um, kind of manifested from a whole bunch of different reasons. And there's been this big project, not just in the United States, but globally to repair all of that. It's taken quite a while. It's not completely done yet, but it has been pretty good. I mean, I think that 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 the banking system today is a lot more safe and sound and fair than it was before. Mm-hmm. Now, but what is that? You know, did, So there, there's risk by saying that, saying, wait, declare victory and move on, which is absolutely not. <laughs> there's so much more to do. And what I like about the financial health framing is it helps to kind of provide some direction there because in some ways it's easy in 2010 to say, what do we have to do? Because in 2010, you got to build capital. You got to get rid of all these crappy products out there. There's all easy, easy, easy. And then as you get better, it's a little harder. You know, it gets, it gets harder and harder to say, but that doesn't mean that there's less to do. There's, I would argue today, you know, like the pandemic has revealed huge inequalities and not just inequality, persistent inequalities. Mm-hmm. And this is something that worries me a lot is it's not just that the mere fact that there's big inequalities is that there that people just get locked in. That once you're yep. in that lower strata, you're just on a hamster wheel. You can't get off of it. And that's structural. And that mm-hmm. that the system, that's a system issue. And that's where it's good to step back and have that system view and say, well, where can we, what do we need to do to break down those structural barriers? So there's opportunity. That, that's just really, really important. Uh, and that's fair because it gets to fairness and fairness gets to trust. Yeah. So I'm going to beat this analogy to a pulp <laughs> Good. <laughs> once, once more to transition us. Um, 
So one of the, where I think the, the analogy stops between healthcare and financial services is that in healthcare, there's a third party payer. Mm. And so one of the things that has been driving uh, this shift from a focus on treating sickness to promoting wellness is the incentive structure. Yeah. And this notion of pay for success as opposed to pay for the office visit. Right. Um, um, if we had something like that in financial services, I've often said that we would be paying banks to keep them from overdrafting their customers, right? right? That would be the closest analogy I can make. Of course, we don't have a third-party payer system in banking, although I guess you could argue that the the subsidy that that banks get uh, in terms of the Fed discount window, maybe that's maybe that's there's something there. I don't know. I haven't thought about that before. Um, but I want to talk a minute for a minute about overdraft because mm-hmm. uh, a lot has happened on the overdraft front during your yeah. tenure. Um, you've had a lot to say about overdraft, and in fact, it's in one of your speeches about overdraft where you tried to make the financial health connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, tell, talk a little bit about how you're feeling about the state of play today mm-hmm. on the overdraft front. And what more do you think financial services companies can do? Um, and will they do it without um, a stick? So I'm, I'm, pretty pos- I'm pretty positive right now on the direction of travel because, well, let me back up. So I think it's good to put overdrafts in historical context. Yes. You know, overdrafts didn't exist for a long time in banking. And then they 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 were they were created around the time the free checking was provided. And it was designed to be used infrequently. Courtesy. And That's why they call it a courtesy overdraft. Right, right. And so it was not designed to be a big moneymaker for banks or to be used a whole lot by people. And of course, what happened over time is that it did get used a lot by people. And I think that speaks to both ends of the equation is that for banks, it turned into a moneymaker, but more importantly, people needed it. I think people you know, increasingly were basically in positions of living paycheck to paycheck, and they had to find ways to basically access uh, that, that short-term credit or liquidity. And that was one. And it's not the only one. I think people think about uh, check cashers, payday lenders, uh, early deposit, like the, all these products, I think, kind of sit in the same zip code um, uh, in terms of use and and cost and potential abuse, not just potential, but actual abuse in some mm-hmm. cases. And so that's that history is really important. And there have been advocates uh, focused on overdress for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I really think they deserve a lot of credit for focusing on overdrafts and payday, et cetera, saying, hey, these are exploitive. In many cases, these are very exploitive on the people who can't afford it. So it kind of gets you back into that things that uh, keep people stuck. And the way I like to um, talk about it, it's, you know, it's expensive to be poor. I think people generally understand that mm-hmm. conceptually. And overdrafts in the financial is that's one of them, right? That's one of those ways is it's expensive and it really only impacts people with very low balances with generally people who are poor. Oh, who are living paycheck to paycheck. And so the thought was, well, if you have this convergence of forces where, you know, the advocates have been focused on this for some time, but then you get increased congressional pressure, you've got competition from fintechs, you've got changes in technology, you've got just kind of a change in attitudes coming out of the pan, you know, through the pandemic, all kind of came together. And suddenly you saw a couple banks saying, we're going to change. Like this doesn't make sense anymore. Like we we're gonna do make some, and those changes were very pro-consumer. And I think those combinations, I think just the stars aligned. And so I think you know, I went out there and started talking about it. Others went out there and started talking about it. And through a combination of um, you know, putting shining a light on it, you know, uh, beating the drum even louder. Uh, kind of highlighting a lot of these things and a lot of cajoling and other things, I think you started to see a number of banks saying, okay, we're going to consider, oh no, now we actually are going to reform our programs. We're going to lower the fees. We're going to provide grace periods. This whole mix of things, which are all pro-consumer, great. And you know, I think I, in, as these things were happening, of course, we're always considering what our legal options are, what our supervisory options are. Um, uh, but while all this is happening, there was a sense of momentum of, okay, this is now, this is all going to change. Like overdrafts, old overdraft, traditional, what I call traditional overdraft programs 
are going to be a thing of the past. Everyone's going to start reforming these things. And that that's why I, I went out and said, I told banks, you don't want to be the last one, right? Like, just get on board with this. Everyone's consumers are a bit different. Like, kind of, you know, talk amongst yourself about how to do this in a way that's going to be pro-consumer. Now, while all this is happening, there are some who are arguing to just get rid of overdress completely. And while I have some sympathy for that, I think if you look at it through a financial health lens, that doesn't make sense. Because if you were to get rid of overdrafts completely, then in some cases that's gonna uh, protect people from those kind of high cost debt traps that we worry about. But in other cases, you're taking away a tool for people to manage their liquidity, to save money, to make ends meet. Otherwise they'd have to turn to other means that are more expensive uh, and more exploitive. Not in all cases, like you have, there's nuance there. Yeah. But I think that financial health lens provides that nuance. It, it embraces that nuance mm-hmm. to be able to have that discussion, which is different than like, are you for it or are you all against it? Because th- those arguments to me are just, you know, like both on the side of the uh, those saying like, no, 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 overdrafts are great. Everyone likes it. That's too simplistic. And overdrafts are evil and everyone's, uh, again, too simplistic. I think the right outcome is um, one where you're maximizing financial health. Yeah. You know, it is amazing that you have uh, been so successful and I take it so happy um, in Washington all these years because I feel like that kind of nuance is very hard to find. <laughs> um, and 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 I don't say that um, in a mean way, I, you know, it's the nature of the beast, right? Where you end up in these very black and white conversations. The hill is very black and white. Um, and um, they don't know what to do, frankly, with me, right? Or because I speak multiple languages, if you will. Um, and uh, I think for me, that's one of the things that's so refreshing about uh, your interest in this topic, um, because you're interested in bringing nuance, more nuance. And that's that can be very hard to find. You know, the, um, I, love, I love my job. I love, I I just, I love being a financial regulator. This is going to sound weird. I think it's like the best (laughs) job in the world. I think it's one of the most underrated, misunderstood jobs out there because there's lots and lots and lots of challenges. It's really, really impactful on people's lives. And not everything requires nuance. I think that the to me, it's really about effectiveness Mm. and getting effective outcomes. And in some cases, many cases, you you have to be smart about how you attack, you know, how you're attacking things, how you're analyzing things. Um, I will say though that there is a communications challenge that is really, really important. And I've gone through an evolution myself. When I was younger, I, would, I was more technocratic about these things. So you're like kind of pointy-headed policy, yeah. policy, policy, yeah. uh, and kind of looked at the communications politics part of it. Uh, as dirty or as mm-hmm. as you know beneath the pureness of the policy and i've actually yeah. come to a much different view now like the, these these things all have to work together mm. and part of the reason i think there's been a loss of trust in just institutions generally in government in other areas is that we've done a really poor job of communicating to folks that we're trying to do this for them with them on their behalf, like, and because it's hard, it's hard to communicate that. And so sometimes we choose not to, and just to say, well, let the results speak for themselves. And that's not good enough because in that communication, you get this feedback and you have to listen. You have to listen to what people want. And sometimes they, you know, and and what's going to serve them. And I think we've lost this part of listening a little bit and this is for everybody. This is uh, oh my of, gosh, I couldn't agree more. And so yeah. I've and, and part of that is because if you listen, you're going to be a better communicator if you listen really well. And so I I I I, I take your point, but that's part of um, I see that as part of my job. Part of our job now is yeah, it's part of the trust building. Is that okay? We're going to come up with these policies. We think these are the right policies. Here's why, and then to effectively communicate that and say no, 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 and then to take the feedback if people say no, that's that's too that's not right. Is this, you, you got to adjust to that because so my dad he was um my dad's an anesthesiologist ah he treats pain 
and for many, many years. And for a while, he, he ran a pain clinic and patients would come in and they say, oh, my back hurts. So he you know, run some tests, all negative. Now my back still hurts, run more tests, all negative. It's like, huh, what's wrong? And then he starts talking to them. Oh, my son won't call me. You know, my uncle passed away. I can't pay my bills. Like there's a whole source of other things going on, which doesn't, you know, like from a technical standpoint, you might dismiss that, but that's part of how the patient feels. That's a very real thing and it's manifesting as pain. And I think that that, it's similar from a policy perspective. Like we can think we're right on something, but we, that doesn't mean we it doesn't give us the excuse not to connect and have that engagement with folks about, you know, is this good? <laughs> is this actually desired? Yeah. Well, now I know where um, your passion for these health analogies come from. <laughs> and I'm so glad you, you shared that um, because not only is it uh, both, physical health and financial health are highly emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, But we now know that um, the stress, the cortisol, Mm -hmm. that uh, financial stress or other kinds of stress in your life drive have a physical manifestation, a negative one. Um, And, you know, so we just issued a paper on uh, medical debt um, that's, that's a very straightforward thing to understand, but it actually doesn't always just go one way, like poor health, have something wrong, bad financial outcome. It often goes the other way. Challenging finances drives negative, uh, health outcomes and, and mental health outcomes. Um, and so that story you shared was just so, uh, was so perfect. Um, uh, there was a research study, some, some focus groups done, a while back. And, um, uh, one of the people in the focus group said, if you want to reduce my stress, help me pay my bills on time. Like if you want to, I have all this physical mental health stress, what's causing it will help me with my finances. So that's really a powerful story. There's some, so Aaron Klein at Brookings had done a piece on kind of connecting all of these things, which is fantastic. I highly encourage folks. And it really is kind of in this space, but, but very well researched, right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, the, the, in fact, I was on, I think I was on the panel, ah. um, after, you know, the event that he did to present the paper. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was absolutely great. And, um, I, you know, I think that these, the, the other thing too, is I, I met with, um, uh, the team at the CFPB mm. that does their financial health. Cause they've got a whole research team, right? They put out a report on financial right. health. Great report. And they were kind of walking me through the methodology. And part of their measurement methodology includes a survey, which includes questions which are uh, what I would call like relative, like how do you feel? Like they're kind subjective, of more, right? Yeah. And that was a very conscious choice on their part because they explained that, look, there are the kind of the metrics part, the, the quantitative, you know, your balances and things like that. But this subjectivity is really, really important for exactly the reasons that you highlighted, Jen, that that matters. That matters how people, how secure you feel. Even if you've got a lot of money, if you're feeling really insecure, simply because you have that money doesn't make that insecurity go away. Right, right. You have to recognize that. Like, And I think, again, this gets back to, okay, as a policymaker, that's important. I think that's an important thing to kind of keep an eye on um, and to be aware of. But right now our metrics are a little bit... um, you know, they're, they're, they could be better developed. It's, it's interesting because we do have, as a country, um, macro metrics that we use uh, to gauge how the macro economy is faring mm-hmm. um, around uh, consumer confidence, mm-hmm. other kinds of consumer sentiment. But we use it really for macro purposes. Yep. And we don't we haven't really, I don't think, think thought about it for micro level decision making, which is an interesting an interesting thing to explore further. Yeah. Um, yeah. um, But, you know, I want to go back to what you were talking about, about communication Mm. uh, and use that as a segue to talk a little bit about crypto or should I say blockchain? Uh, Because if there's one thing we can all agree on about this topic, and this may be the only thing we can agree on, uh, is that no one can really explain it. No one really (laughs) fully understands it. And it suffers dramatically from a communication 
um, gap. You actually recently launched a discussion series titled uh, uh, Vital Signs, mm-hmm. exploring issues related to financial well-being of consumers. And your first uh, episode was on crypto. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of the arguments we hear in support of it identify the prospect of improving access or increasing inclusion or democratizing financial services. Is it really the equalizer? Uh, it, sort of where are you in the crypto topic? So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start off very clearly and say I'm a crypto skeptic. So I've been public about saying that I remain a crypto skeptic and we can have a whole other episode talking about that. Um, but I do want to kind of bring it back to this first episode because uh, for for vital signs because the way this came up, the there's a couple of interesting uh, data points I would say on crypto. The first is the birth of crypto took place in 2009 in the heart of the crisis. It was basically a response to the crisis that you had a combination of technology coming together with a philosophy that banks and governments had let the people down and there need to be another way. It, it all goes back to trust. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so if you read, you know, there, there's this famous uh, paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, which is like the birth of Bitcoin. It's a very short paper, actually. And you, you really just need to read the first page because it just lays out <laughs> the philosophy. And the philosophy was we need a system that does not rely on banks or governments to pay each other. And so that was, and then here's all this, you know, interesting, complicated uh, blockchain type stuff and cryptography. But that was the genesis. And that creation myth is really, really important to crypto, I think, mm-hmm. culturally. So you take that and you fast forward and you've got, um, I remember seeing the first time there was a, there was a survey by Morning uh, Consult on who owns crypto. And they broke it down by fully banked, underbanked, and unbanked. And fully banked was 10%. Underbanked was, I think, uh, 20%. And unbanked, I'm sorry, unbanked was 20%. And underbanked was 40%. Mm-hmm. So underbanked are people with bank accounts, but they still rely on check out other alternative uh, providers for financial service F- four times. And I thought that's got to be a misprint. And then other surveys started coming in, and you were seeing this pattern owners of crypto, younger, more diverse. Um, and more underbanked than the general population, which really raised a ton of questions in my mind. So I started looking into it. And I think when you get into those communities, you realize there's actually a fierce debate. Like there are some folks in those communities who are saying this, the traditional banking system has let us down. And I don't, you, there's, this is, you, you can trace this back to like in the black community, you go to the Freeman Savings Bank and black banking and, and that whole history, which is yep. super interesting and really um, disturbing in kind of the systemicness of that to all, not just to blacks, but to other communities, like it's let us down. And this new thing is kind of anti-establishment provides some promise for us to kind of bootstrap ourselves up by ourselves. And by the way, people are, make, are making some money on it. So there is that sense and feeling. And there are others in the black community who are saying, this is snake oil, watch out. And so I really wanted to bring these views together. Okay, let's get past the talking points. Let's try to have like a a real debate about like, is this healthy or not for the community? And like, if so, how? Um, So it it, it was, it was really interesting. (laughs) And it sounds like consensus was not reached. Consensus wasn't reached. I, I think there was, there was what I sensed, and in, in the two guests we had, we had John Hope Bryant, mm-hmm. uh, who focuses a lot on financial literacy, um, uh, and Professor Tanya Evans, who is, you know, they're both African-American. Uh, Professor Tanya, she's been in, kind of in, in the Bitcoin uh, blockchain space, um, very well recognized as an expert uh, in her field. And I think there was some, there was agreement that, you know, don't bet your rent check, uh, as John would say, don't uh, bet your rent check on it, right? Yep. Diversify. Um, and then I think Tanya changing John's mind on saying, well, there's something here that's worth looking into and researching, um, you know, that that's it's not just all totally uh, uh, smoke and mirrors. And so th- th- in that sense, there's something there, but you're right. So do you in your own mind differentiate between being a crypto skeptic versus being a blockchain skeptic or for you is all the same? It's all the same thing. 
Um, I, for me, it's, it's very similar in the sense that um, I, it, there's this phrase, it's a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> Yeah, which I think is somewhat accurate in many cases where uh, people say, oh, we'll just put it on the blockchain as if that will solve you know, uh, X problem versus, well, what's X problem? And so we have to say, you know, as a policymaker, I say, well, if we define the problem as there are barriers to financial inclusion, okay, well, what are those barriers? Oh, we have a home ownership gap, big right. one, right? Uh, we've got credit invisibles, big one. Like, so these are ones to me that are, very discrete problems. And it's not clear to me how blockchain or crypto solves those. Remittances, there, there are areas where it's like, okay, this there, the use case here actually has some validity and there's something interesting there, um, but it does require nuance. Right. <laughs> well, and, you know, so I am also a crypto skeptic. I am more open-minded about blockchain technology. Mm. I, do, I do think that there could be some use cases, but they may not be financial. Yes. Yeah. I think that's right. I think um, right. or they may be they may be financial, but it's more about um it's more legal. So think about the mortgage uh process um and taking title and mm-hmm. you know could we could could the blockchain improve that process? Um I suspect it could. Um, but that's different than change money changing hands. Um, There's, I also think that there is an upper, I mean, like you said, cross-border money movement mm-hmm. certainly could, if we could reduce friction or reduce cost there, I think that's great. But in my mind, that should be buried somewhere inside the tech stack. Like yeah. the, the retail consumer yeah. shouldn't have to worry about what they're transacting in. Let someone else in the back room figure that out. And if blockchain is a way to improve that, fantastic. Right, right. One one thing that um, I think uh, uh, a couple of uh, those in kind of the crypto skeptic space have have been pretty good at highlighting. One of the pros and cons of kind of in the blockchain space is a lot of it depends on code. Mm. And some people, I think technologists have greater faith in code than in people. And I think it's because they know the space and that's, that's, that's what they deal with. Uh, I think if you're not a coder, <laughs> it's a harder call. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where, again, this gets back to, I think people have been disappointed in contracts and the rule of law and these things, because for instance, you sign up to something and there's a terms of use and you just kind of click through it. And then you find out later, oh, I'm getting screwed in some way. And people say, no, 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 it's there in the fine print. Like that, that erodes trust, right? And so people will say, well, I don't want that anymore. Can, what else is out there? Mm-hmm. And the coders say, hey, look over here, right? We don't have terms of use. We just have this blockchain that's immutable, blah, 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 blah. It's programmable. It's automatic. Sounds great until something bad happens. And then you've got a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. That you have so to it sounds with. like, it really sounds like the um, the choice is about, do you try to reform the system you have mm-hmm. uh, or you blow it up, right? And start something completely new that in theory is institution-less. Um, and uh, so in a way, your perspective isn't surprising because you're an institutionalist in many ways, right? Your, your career has been working, yeah. you know, and so, you know, at the end of the day though, um, uh, there are still significant legal and regulatory questions that are being raised every day, mm-hmm. all different kinds in this arena. And in the role you're in, you will probably have to uh, make some policy choices. And I'm curious, how will you balance the need for guardrails here um, and your own personal skepticism with the um, the potential need to uh, enable continued innovation. So I will always start and end with like, what is good for the people? Mm-hmm. And because um, that's, that's just the, to me, it's a good compass on all of these questions is what protects people. And in some cases, um, innovation protects people because they're in a situation where you need innovation to break out of something that's not healthy or something that, that that's exploitive. In other cases, uh, you have to 
kind of uh, lean in into kind of reforming and hardening uh, those parts of the institutional structure that are good, that are good for people. Like not, not, not all is bad out there. There's plenty of good stuff out there too. Right, right. And you want to reinforce those. Um, and so it really depends on what the issue is. You know, I, I'm, I'm not dogmatic on these things. I, I try to bring it back to um, we're trying to solve problems for people and it has to be all people, not just certain people. And often those who are the most underserved, the most vulnerable, they need the most help from the perspective of uh, uh, the government because they have the least kind of power relative to, to others. Yeah. So, you know, you made a case earlier for why being a bank regulator is the best job in the world. And I have no doubt about that. But, you know, let's be honest, kids don't generally dream of becoming bank regulators. And <laughs> You clearly decided not to go into the family business of medicine, but you've been doing this your whole career in one way or another. How did, how did you get here? Um, Just through a comment, it's just dumb luck is is probably the best uh, response, but um, you know, I've always wanted to do, I've always been drawn to public service and that's, that's because I just, I've been very lucky, like more lucky than I deserve by a long shot. And uh, just out of a sense of fairness, it's like, okay, I got to do something good with that luck, mm. not just kind of consume it for myself. That just, that just doesn't feel right. Um, and so that's that's a kind of an, a core underlying part. And then in the bank regulatory sphere, it's I just go back to, it impacts a lot of people's lives. It's both intellectually challenging and kind of soft skills wise has tons of challenges. You got to deal with bankers, you got to deal with the Hill, you got to deal with analysts. There's lots of dimensions to it. Um, and perhaps most just constant learning, you know, the system's constantly changing. Like, so I just, I just like learning things. And for folks out there who are, who are curious, if you're curious, you like to learn new things, you like to work with like just a really interesting cast of characters, uh, and to do something that's both impactful and influential on the world, like bank regulation should be near the top of that list. (laughs) It doesn't strike many people that way, but, uh, I can tell you there have been folks who come into this job. They're like, wow, I had no idea that this is what it was. It's kind of like a, it's a bit of a gem. <laughs> so. You are like the poster child for this podcast because <laughs> you are someone who always puts the, puts people at the center. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also a silo buster, yeah. right? You see across silos, uh, which is also not typical in banking regulatory world. Um, So I'm curious, who are some of the leaders who really inspire you uh, to do this work and Uh, to have this perspective in the first place? So in terms of the silos, there's this great, there's there's two things that I can kind of point to. One is, um, there's a book by Jillian Tett called The Silo Effect. So Jillian Tett- I've right? read this book. So, and, and I love how she starts the book. So for the, for your listeners, you know, she's an editor at the Financial Times, but she's an anthropologist by training. This is very important because she, she brings kind of an anthropological view to things, which is awesome. All of her books are fantastic. But in the silo effect, it starts off, how do large companies full of smart people make such dumb decisions? <laughs> so that's an interesting hook. And she just kind of, talks through, uh, they just create silos and these silos start working across purposes and then things kind of uh, implode on themselves. That, I had read that shortly after, um, I have a good friend who, former Navy SEAL, uh, worked with uh, General McChrystal in Afghanistan. And that story is also very interesting. So there's another book called Team of Teams, Mm. um, which he co-authored with General McChrystal. Very similar, um, Dave Silverman. Okay, and very very similar idea that at the time when uh, when they got there, there I think they were thirteen different uh, military forces and intelligence agencies, and they weren't talking to each other, and so they were getting they were losing, they were losing to an enemy that was very very nimble and very different, and so they had to change. It lives mattered. This wasn't about money. This was about like people's lives, so they had to change a lot, and that journey. And that those processes had a lot of lessons for corporate America. And then mm. as I was talking to my friend Dave, and as I was kind of reading the book, I'm like, wow, we have a lot of lessons for us in government. So just pulling these ideas together, it's like, can we 
can that lead to a more effective bank regulatory function, not just within an agency, but across the different agencies. Mm-hmm. So that's that's you know been very animating uh, for me, having gone through the crisis, because in the 2008 crisis, it was super siloed. Part of the reason that crisis happened, every agency just drilled down on its own thing, which created a huge number of gaps. Uh, and so mm. we and we paid the price for that. And so now, you know, this is part of what motivates me now is that okay, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> like, let's do it better. We can do it better. And and you know, it's it's not perfect, but I think kind of the bones of what kind of came out of Dodd Frank are, are the right. It's the right structure. And so a lot of this is like people kind of working together uh, to try to make it work for the people. So at the end of the day, um, culture matters yes. more than almost anything else. Yes, yes, yes. And and the other kind of leadership books, I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading um, Lowenstein's uh, Ways and Means right now, mm. which is about civil war and kind of the economic battle between the North and the South. And he, he puts everything through this kind of economic lens. And Lincoln, he's, it's very interesting. He just, the way he presents Lincoln and how he's thinking about both anti-slavery and both the morality of it but this idea that like everyone needs an opportunity to get on that ladder, like that economic equality was really, really important to Lincoln, which comes through again and again in a whole bunch of different decisions, mm. um, which is not something I had heard emphasized so much before. But as you kind of read this, you kind of go through, you know, Legal Tender Act, National Bank. So the OCC's history is embedded within this book, which is fascinating. Oh. Yeah. I love it. All right. I'm putting that one on my reading list. Um, I could talk to you all day, uh, but uh, I think we should bring this conversation to a close. So Mike, Acting Controller Sue, thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jen. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.